BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, December 4th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So... Do you know who you're voting for in 2018? 2018? Isn't it 2017 still? <laughs> it is 2017. But hey, you know, there might be some pretty big decisions we need to make in the next year. So time to start thinking about it, maybe. I, I It's the holidays. So I feel like I need a break from politics. It feels like we don't get any breaks from politics because every election is, is life and death. And I know for months, everyone's been talking about 2018 around my household. Oh, certainly. And, you know, it seems like even in 2017, we had a few elections and, you know, we're still talking about those. But there is one organization that I want to bring people's attention to that I think is really meaningful and something that I hope will gain much more traction in 2018 than it has in the past. And this is sciencedebate.org. So sciencedebate.org is an organization that is uh, that was designed to ask politicians to answer questions about science as they are being considered uh, for office. And it's all candidates. So, I mean, primarily they rose to fame when they interviewed presidential candidates for their positions. Uh, but they also interviewed uh, and asked these questions of, of candidates in primaries. And they would do a lot of work to make sure all candidates, even candidates in the Green Party and non-traditional parties were were interviewed for this so that their positions could be shown side by side. And they still have uh, the answers of, of the major presidential candidates over the last few elections. And I have to say, like reading their answers. Don't read the answers. They're <laughs> always disappointing. But they're so interesting. I, you know, to see how these people at least were thinking when they were candidates as opposed to, you know, currently in office or not. Um, to me, it's really fascinating. And I think that uh, there's a lot of sort of, you know, prescience about what policy changes have happened or haven't happened. Um, and of course, to me, it's always interesting to see what did they say? And then did they actually do what they said uh, now that they're in office? So in order to understand more about science debate, to spread the word and to figure out what the organization really hopes for for 2018, I interviewed Cheryl Kirschenbaum. She's the executive director of Science Debate. She's also the co-author of Unscientific America, How Scientific Illiteracy Threatens Our Future with Chris Mooney. She also wrote The Science of Kissing, which is, you know, totally different. 
I actually read that book. That book is a lot of fun. Yeah, she's great. So she's going to tell us uh, a little bit about why they she started science dot, sciencedebate.org and what the goals of the organization are for 2018. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Cheryl Kirschenbaum. This episode is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ believes that the best way to improve the health of the world is to celebrate the health conscious through social and financial rewards. They use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and more. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 30% on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ because, after all, physically active people have a much lower risk of all cause mortality. 56% lower risk of heart disease, 22% decrease in cancer mortality compared to people who remain active, according to a recent study. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com inquiring or mention the promo code inquiring when you talk to a Health IQ agent. That's healthiq.com inquiring to get your free quote. And today's episode is brought to you by Chef Steps. Are you a dinner party host looking for a foolproof way to get the perfect meats, poultry, or fish with the Jewel sous vide? Every home cook can create chef-level dishes thanks to precise temperature control. Jewel makes sure your food will never over or undercook so you're free to focus on your guests while making amazing sides. I have a Jewel. It's my favorite sous vide device and makes weeknight cooking an absolute breeze. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jewel and use the code MINDS to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code MINDS. Cheryl Kirschenbaum, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be on. So um, tell me a little bit about Science Debate. How did the idea first come about? Sure. Well, Science Debate came about because a group of us were watching everything happening leading up to the 2008 election. And we were increasingly frustrated that science wasn't being given much of a presence in debates or questions from the media. And so um, a team of folks, which included Chris Mooney at the Washington Post and Matthew Chapman, who's Darwin's great-great-great-great-great-grandson and Sean Otto and Lawrence Krauss um, just started thinking, where is the science uh, in policy? And why aren't we hearing about it? Because if we don't hear about it prior to the election, why should we expect anyone to be able to address it when they're actually in office? So we started as this petition uh, just saying science and technology are important and we think there should be a debate about science because we saw all these faith-based debates and other debates and nothing really about issues like mental health and climate change and energy and water and all of these big issues that impact all of us. And so uh, Science Debate started as a petition. We got about 40,000 people to sign on in just a couple weeks, which at the time was before all these change.org petitions. So that was kind of a big deal. And Science Debate grew from there. So since that election, since the 2008 election, we've had every major presidential candidate answer 14 to 20 questions on science policy that we curate by crowdsourcing and then ultimately work with groups like the National Academies and the Council on Competitiveness and AAAS to 
put together into you know a handful of questions that really touch on some of the most pressing issues facing us as a country and as a planet. Uh, and then we print their answers. We publish their answers. You put their answers on your website, which is sciencedebate.org? Sciencedebate.org, yes. All the uh, answers are there so far under presidential Q&A. But for the first time in 2018, we're asking all House, Senate, and gubernatorial candidates across the U.S., so all 50 states, to respond to 10 questions um, with additional room for them to address issues directly related to their district or their state. Uh, simply because the whole idea is that a more informed public means democracy is working. So um, so we think it's really important. And we're encouraged and excited. We've gotten a few responses so far. But we're really trying to get the message out there that we're doing this and we need people who would be these candidates' constituents on the ground to ask their candidates to respond. And typically, what are the responses like? I mean, do they seem like they are talking points that some speechwriter wrote? Do they seem really kind of genuine from, you know, thoughtful from the candidates? What, what's the, how seriously do you think the candidates are taking answering these questions? So it's all over the place. Um, we have some answers that are people that like, they're so articulate, and they seem to really have a grasp of these issues that they or their team members working on these issues for them really seem to have a plan for if they come to into office. Um, there's folks who I honestly think maybe sat down one night and just tried to answer them really quickly. And that's fine, because at least they're participating. Um, and we've had candidates from Barack Obama to now President Trump respond. And frankly, I was I was surprised and delighted that before he uh, before Election Day that we had President Trump respond to 20 science policy questions. I can't say that he's stuck to every answer that he's given. But I think a big point of what we're trying to do is make the case that, you know, science is very politicized. It's very partisan, but science impacts everyone. So it's just as important for candidates on the red side of the ticket as it is for candidates on the blue side of the ticket, and even libertarians and independents and, and others to address these so they come into office with an idea of how they'd approach some really complex, challenging issues. And you often hear when they're in office, like on topics like climate change, we always hear that excuse, well, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not equipped to talk about this issue. But they're not economists, and they talk about the economy, and they're not security officers, and they talk about national security. So we think that it's not a stretch at all to expect them to address science and technology. Yeah, so that I wanted to sort of dive a little bit more deeply into uh, the responses of Donald Trump, since he's our current president, um, to see the extent to which answering these questions before a person is elected might influence or might be, you know, a harbinger of how they behave. So, you know, if you, I'm looking now at, you know, the, of course, the first thing I went to was climate change. <laughs> and here's what uh, Donald Trump responded or his team responded. There is still much that needs to be investigated in the field of, and he puts it in quotes, climate change. <laughs> Perhaps the best use of our limited financial resources should be in dealing with making sure that every person in the world has clean water. And it goes on from there. Uh, perhaps we should focus on eliminating lingering diseases around the world like malaria. I mean, is there any evidence that in his first year, instead of focusing on climate change, he actually has made any kind of initiatives to help people get access to clean water or cure diseases like malaria? Well, I can tell you. So we have to be really careful. So we're a C3. And it's really vital in what we do that we don't weigh in too much on um how the candidates respond. I mean, we just want it to be a safe space. Um, in terms of Trump's 
what he's doing so far in a lot of these issues. I think you can look to some of his appointees and what they're doing at places like the EPA and the statements that are being made elsewhere, um, like the Department of Energy, and some of his recent ideas for who should run Council on Environmental Quality. And you think to yourself, um, these probably this probably isn't the most pro-science administration that we've seen. But I can say on the flip side of that, when President Obama's campaign set out to work on these answers, they included people like John Holdren and Stephen Chu and Jane Lubchenco, people who then went on to serve in cabinet positions. So he was able to come into office with a strategy on how he tackle a lot of these issues. And science debate may have been part of pulling those ideas together. And in fact, our, um, our tagline back then was restoring science to its rightful place. And it was really nice to hear him include that in his inaugural address. So it's, it's really a case-by-case -case basis um, judging how the words beforehand come into play in actual policy. So are there any other examples like that of people who answered the questions and who now are in a position to do something about it? Um, well, you know, we've only asked the presidential candidates. So we've had Barack Obama respond twice and now President Trump. Uh, so it'll be really interesting with this set of questions out to so many more candidates to see how people follow through and whether or not that plays into how people vote on election day. I mean, like at this point, I feel like whenever candidates talk about science, it's considered this um, this exception, like, oh, isn't that so nice he took the time to do that, when really it should be an expectation at this point. And um, I think more and more of us are recognizing that these issues are pretty pressing and we better do something about it, whether it's things like climate change as we're seeing more extreme storms or um, increased like crazy weather anomalies, um, or whether it's water. I mean, I live in Michigan, so I seeing firsthand what's going on in Flint and how that situation hasn't really been taken care of quite yet. So I think the issues that are important to each district and each state are going to vary, but it's up to us as constituents to make those as important as we possibly can prior to 2018. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to me that Donald Trump's response to climate change is to talk about access to clean water. And that I don't know that there's been much focus, at least I haven't seen much focus in his administration in trying to sort out what's happening in Flint. Well, I think what we have seen is he's been, well, his team, his cabinet has been working on um, rolling back regulations that protect the environment in so many ways, but including things that protect us from pollution and some, you know, toxic substances that are carcinogens that can enter the water system or enter the atmosphere. And so I wouldn't say he's necessarily stuck to that. I don't have the questions that I don't have his answers in front of me, but you might want to read his response on the question on scientific integrity, because uh, I find that one kind of illuminating considering his current position. Yeah, so this is this is what he says. Science is science and facts are facts. My administration will ensure that there will be total transparency and accountability without political bias. The yeah. American people deserve this and I will make sure this is the culture of my administration. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, you know, you 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 chose uh you at Science Debate have by you know, the the big you. <laughs> I don't know if you uh Cheryl chose all these questions. If you did, congratulations. They're really well chosen. I mean, even there's one on the opioid crisis, uh, which of course is is very much in the news right now. And here's what Donald Trump as candidate said, we first should stop the inflow of opioids into the United States. We can do that and we will. And, you know, as this is a national problem, so on and so on and so on, you know, which is a, is not at all, it seems, what has been the focus of, of his administration, you know, his with the executive order in which he's, you know, essentially 
promised to, you know, give and we I think we still don't know what it means, but, you know, to call this a kind of national crisis and, you know, an emergency. But then, yeah. What do you so, think about it? Yeah. 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 yeah so, you know, but like, it certainly doesn't the seem like themselves the questions um, as they, like so they're crowdsourced and then they go through this very rigorous process of all of these folks in authority or in leadership positions at various science agencies. And we go back and forth about the best way to word them. So um, we really like that has that's a lot of people we have to thank for helping us put that together. And although I will say with the with the 10 questions, so I, and I should add, actually, with this 2018 push, with the 10 questions that came out of candidates coming to us saying, we want to answer these questions. I'm running for office in two years. I'm not running for president. Can I get involved? And enough people asked us where we thought, well, we have the structure in place to support this. So let's make it happen. Um, so it's a very different process. And what we did with these questions is we kind of took the 20 that were already there and adapted them. Um, like we, we combined questions that were say climate and energy became one question with the possibility to explore both in your response. And we combined some questions related to public health issues like the opioid crisis and other, you know, other, other similar, um, not similar, but other, other health related topics. So we did the best we could to keep everything there, but we wanted to do it in a way where the responses were open enough that you could touch on a lot of different topics that might be a priority to you as a candidate. And and we also recognize that campaign staff is very often very small for candidates that aren't running for president. So we wanted to make sure it was um, palatable for them to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's reasonable to ask for, you know, 10 questions to be answered. Uh, and is there any way, though, that now, say, our listeners could submit questions that can be like, let's say there is a gubernatorial candidate, for example, who is particularly keen on answering questions. You know, I think probably uh, Gavin Newsom in California is a good candidate. I bet he would be interested in answering these questions. Is there a forum through which um, people can uh, you know, set, submit questions to Science Debate to pass along to him? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's what we've done on the in the presidential years. Um, we haven't been doing this open call for questions right now for 2018, just because we had to kind of trim them down and get something ready to go. Um, so all candidates are getting like the same set of questions. And you can see them if you go to that sciencedebate.org website, you can click on the blue box in the front of the page about the 2018 questions. So you can actually click on that, find your state, click on your state and see the set of questions that are being asked to every candidate. But in addition, like we have this extra space to address topics relevant to that person's state. So if we have a number of people coming to a candidate saying, will you please also talk about this? That's the space that we hope that they would use to discuss it. And as I like in Flint, it could be water in, um, in the Pacific Northwest. Maybe it's fires is like extreme weather events, fires as they relate to maybe more climate issues. Uh, but we wanted to leave that open because every space is different. So are there any, have you received any answers and are there ways in which our listeners can go and find answers that have already been submitted by candidates? There are. So on our website, if you go to sciencedebate.org, there's a big blue button that says Q&A 2018. And from there you get to a map and you can click on your state wherever you live and you'll see all 10 of the questions with the ability to open any individual question and see what candidates have responded from that state. So we have a few candidates that have already participated, and we're really excited to be able to share those in places like Pennsylvania and um, where else in Florida and Texas. And um, if you don't see any responses or you don't see your 
favorite candidates' responses or those who might represent you, you can get in touch with them and we give you a way to find out where those people are, who they are, and maybe some ways to contact them too. Awesome. So if you have an a, a area of the country that's not particularly responsive, um, you know, I imagine that this might fall down party lines or it might not, uh, where you have just holes in responses. What do you think that um, constituents can do? I mean, I mean, how do you put pressure on the candidates? I mean, I know we can write and ask, but, you know, that still might be only a few people. What do you at Science Debate think that you can do to make sure that these questions are at the forefront of people's minds? Yeah, well, I mean, all of it is about getting those people on the ground in those states to make this important. So we can do as much as we can in terms of beating the drum nationally, but a candidate's not really going to be that compelled to respond until they feel like the people that they're going to represent actually care. Now, we are trying to coordinate with groups that are satellites of the March for Science uh, in each state. So that's a good resource for folks who might be listening that are thinking about getting involved. Um, There's also a group called Sigma Xi, which is a scientific organization that has grassroots efforts going on on a state by state basis. But, you know, a lot of this is just making making science matter um, is what it comes down to. And there's there's already science cafes happening all over the place, even in places that you think of as like completely uh, focus, well, just, just not very pro-science communities. They still have their pockets of areas where there might be universities or there might be cities that, uh, that tend to take science a little more seriously. So it's connecting with the people who are most likely to be interested to go to the state house or make that phone call or even send that email. Those things all matter. I used to work on the Hill and even at the Senate level, we would track every single call that came in and make a note of it. And at the end of the week, we'd get a report of what issues came up, what was being asked about, what we need to address. And campaigns are doing that too. So it's up, it's, it's really on all of us to make this happen. You know, of course, all of these issues that you're, that you've asked presidential candidates to talk about food, energy, water, mental health, vaccinations, regulations, opioids, ocean health, immigration, even don't sound like they're limited to science. If you ask the general public, I mean, if you ask the general public, whether immigration is a science issue, I think most people would say no. Right. Um, So sometimes I wonder if like, you know, because in certain circles, science has a bad rap. Is there, should we be thinking about not necessarily qualifying it as a scientific question, but rather, you know, a question, you know, using some kind of other way of kind of bypassing it, but really getting at the science? I don't know. I don't know if I'm sort of being clear about it. But you know, I, I think that you're exactly right. So I think a lot of people think science is boring. They think it's something they had a slog through and high school and then they never want to deal with again. But the truth is, like, we built our booming economy on science and technology. And 50% of our economic growth in the last 50 years happened because of science research and innovation. Like right now, we're seeing all these attacks on basic research and cuts that would come to higher ed from the um, the possible like the new tax plan. So uh, we're, we're seeing like science under attack, but we're not making the connections that, you know what, this is about the economy. This is about our health. This is about things that all of us care about because they impact our, our, our families and our communities and they impact our wallets. So I think drawing those ties and making those connections wherever we possibly can is really going to be critical to get people to take this seriously. You know, I have to commend you for your appearance on a Fox morning show called, uh, I think it's Good, good morning, New York, or something like that. Thank you. 
The, yeah, good day, New York. Um, and, you know, the, the one of the hosts there picks up her iPhone and says, this is science. And, you know, science is boring in the next <laughs> sentence. And it was just, I mean, I could just imagine being in your shoes. And, um, you know, how, how do you, I mean, I know you had to be polite on that. And like, you know, again, like, I think it was great that you guys launched these t- 2018 questions in a forum in which science is not generally thought of as, you know, having a prime time uh, spot. But, you know, what what is your strategy in terms of addressing individuals who really have that conception that, you know, science is just technology, that those two things and are, you know, there's nothing more to science than that, or that, you know, science is something that nobody wants to talk about on a morning show? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's finding a way to make it fun and make it about more than numbers and data. When I worked on the Hill, so many scientists would come to me and they would talk about p-values and significance values and statistics. And I worked with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with in my entire life. But I could tell they were kind of starting to tune out at times because a lot of the folks from the science community didn't really have a take-home message or even know how to stay on message or were printing out PowerPoint slides and not really speaking English. So <laughs> I, I can understand how it often comes across that way. And I think it's really... It's on us in the science community to be better storytellers. And like not that we need another thing lobbed on top of all the other responsibilities we might have at an academic and like I work at Michigan State University, so at an academic institution or in industry or in, in so many other places. But that's where I think that the kind of work that you're doing is so important and so valuable because a lot of people aren't making the connections between science and what's relevant to them. But the deeper you dive, the more you kind of get sucked into the fact that science, like there's nothing cooler than working in science, no matter what capacity you're doing. And I think you meet any kid and they're so excited about dinosaurs and space and the deep ocean. And then we kind of get that hammered out of us when we get to high school and we're just doing these super boring labs, which were boring to me too. But, um, but I think, I think telling stories, I think making it about people and I think giving some, giving some um, context to why this is so important beyond beyond just, you know, more data is really what it's about and ultimately what's going to get us out of the mess that we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think just, you know, in, in again, going back to the presidential Q&As, I mean, it's just every one of those topics seems like a major topic in any kind of debate, not just a science debate. And I think that that's sort of, you know, maybe maybe the pushes towards uh, using scientific tools to answer any question rather than, you know, relegating questions to just, you know, this, these are the science questions and then these are the economic questions or these are the, you know, culture questions or, or however else you, you bend them. Um, because you're right in that so much of our world in the last 50 years has been completely changed because of science and technology. And, you know, as a result, you know, it's it, in some ways it, it, it almost doesn't have to have its own topic because it, it it sort of has its tentacles in every topic. But what what do you think about sort of, you know, what are the pros of, of sort of leading with the science debate and sort of putting that forefront in these questions rather than the other way around, you know, having a question that, you know, everybody would agree is an important question and then using science to answer it? Yeah, I mean, framing it in this context. Um, well, I, I guess... We, we have been such a global leader when it comes to research and innovation. And it's, it's made us, it's given us, as I said before, like our strong economy. And I feel like we're at this point where we're suddenly not investing. And what I mean by that is you look at what we did in the late 50s and the 60s. Everyone always talks about Sputnik. So maybe it sounds cliche, but 
About 12% of our federal budget at the time went to R&D, which is a lot of the science stuff. And today, the last time I spoke to uh, Matt Horahan at AAAS, it was 3.5% of our federal budget is going to research and development. So if our national priorities are represented by where we're investing our tax money, then science is taking a backseat to most everything else. And that's a problem because we're seeing ourselves no longer being competitive. And like a great example of that is looking at what's happened with solar technology. So China has really doubled down and taken this as an opportunity. And they're like by far coming out ahead. And they're the ones with the new technology. And they're the ones that everyone is now depending upon to produce these solar panels. Whereas in the U.S., we didn't do it. We lost out. You know, we're not going to be that 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 leading country that comes out with solar now. And it's really a missed opportunity. It's a missed economic opportunity. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm going on a slight tangent from what you asked. But I think the point is that we need as a country to really go back to recognizing all of the promise that science and technology offers. And we're not there right now. So we've got to start talking about science in these other contexts. But putting it all in this kind of forum uh, where you're putting, you're, you're, you're highlighting that these are about science, but that these are also about issues we're hearing on, in the news every night, whether it's the opioid crisis or whether it's clean water. Um, I, I, I hope that it would help to help us shift our priorities and focus a little more heavily on science itself as, as, um, as an endeavor and as something that really builds what we've come to expect as the United States. And I hope also with this kind of a framing, you actually sort of implicitly encourage the candidates to be a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more objective, a little bit more analytical and precise about what it is that they are going to be um, suggesting as opposed to just using sound bites and, and, and words that are imprecise and, you know, the way a lot of other debates a- end up being. Well, and I think, too, one, it gives them a... a it gives them a moment to collect themselves and to figure out what their positions actually are on issues. So when they need to address them later, when they come up in a debate, they're actually prepared. It's not something they have to pivot on or gloss over because they've thought a little bit about what their policies or what kinds of policies they'd support. Um, on top of that, I think for the most part, people expect science-related questions to be gotcha questions, even in the broad public perception, right? Like, when you look at the National Science Foundation's indicators on science literacy and some of the questions they ask, every time they put out that report, you have these stats and like um, 70, only 74% of Americans know that the earth revolves around the sun. And then like I often get asked to write about it and there are invitations that ask me to write about it in the context of like, haha, isn't that funny? Look how stupid we are. And to me, that's not really science literacy. Science literacy is the ability to think critically and to recognize how the scientific process works. Um, And I think that that's not too high an expectation for our policymakers as well. And so if anything, I hope that science debate, participating in science debate would help them organize their ideas and their thoughts and figure out who their team might be on some of these big issues. So when some of those people are elected, they're prepared. And there are some studies showing that more and more people are not just accepting stories and um, anecdotes uh, uh, as evidence. If you actually pit an anecdote with a scientific study, you know, most people who answer those kinds of surveys will say that the scientific study is more convincing, you know, whether or not they act that way in other contexts, you know, or whether or not they remember the information later, you know, is, is, is a different question. Um, but I do think that overall, I, I agree with you that sometimes, you know, asking for in 
individual facts uh, belies the fact that hopefully our country is becoming uh, a little bit more critical in terms of uh, how they get their thinking. Although, you know, I don't know that there's much evidence of that just yet. Well, I think that the um, the internet poses a whole series of new challenges because you can find any scientific opinion you want as quick as you can find a Google search. Uh, and you can find support for your point of view, which I'm sure you talk about a lot on this podcast. Um, and Tom, Nich- uh, T- Tom Nichols refers to it as the death of expertise, right? Like we're all experts, so we're not listening to the actual experts anymore. But you know, if if we if we put a lot more pressure on candidates to actually find out what some of their positions might look like and think about it before they're just answering flippantly to some journalist who comes and bombards them with a science question, I think we'll all be a little bit better off. So we'll follow sciencedebate.org over the next year. We're still a year away from the 2018 election. So there's lots of time for people to write their candidates and ask them to answer these questions uh, and to get this debate going. So Cheryl Kirschenbaum, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a real treat. I still have to go back to the fact that I think it's really early to get some of these questions out. The election, you know, you both talked about is still like a year away. Uh, so it feels early. And at the same time, I, I, I was left with this thought. I pride myself of being very politically active. And I've done a lot of work over the last few years about wanting people to think about science when they go to the polls. But when I think about it for myself and I think about it for my family, like what do I think about when I go to the polls? I think about granular stuff like is can I afford, you know, healthcare? Can I afford food on the table? Um, you know, it, stuff that is is like it's the economy stupid type yeah, stuff. Yeah. I actually think that's why I think I think the only way that science is going to have a bigger uh, you know, focus in the debates and, you know, in terms of what the candidates say, is if we do do it early enough, because right now they're not overwhelmed, they're not too too busy, potentially. Uh, it's not, you know, the race up to the polls. Uh, so, you know, I think this is the time in some ways to ask them to do something that maybe they wouldn't normally do in the course of their campaigning, or, you know, maybe something that could give them an edge with a group of voters that they don't traditionally seek out. Um, so, so, you know, I applaud Cheryl and her team for, you know, bringing this together early. There's all, there are already um, answers up on sciencedebate.org. And I think it is going to be fun to see, you know, more and more show up over the course of the next 12, 13 months. That being said, I mean, I agree with you. Like, I think a lot of people, even if they are science minded, when they go to the polls, they think about, you know, the economy, policymaking and so forth. Um, but I just don't think that those two things are going to be separable in 2018 or moving forward. I mean, the economy is so tied to aspects of science that, you know, we all know play a huge role and and how policy is going to either enhance or take away from the scientific, you know, endeavor is going to is going to mean a lot to the economy, especially in the US. I think we're an interesting year because the barriers that have existed for a long period of time between scientists and active participation in policy seem to be eroding at a much faster rate than we see in the past. I mean, just this week, thousands of graduate students walked out uh, and protested uh, the potential tax reform bill, which would result in increased taxes on them by taxing their tuition waiver. I'm sort of of um, two minds about this. Like, 
I want this to happen. Like, I want people to go to sciencedebate.org and and read these. I want to watch an actual debate where a science question is asked from an audience member. Uh, I'm not very hopeful about it, but I will leave you with this. I had a a very direct conversation with a federally elected official this past year. And I said, like, what would it actually take for change? And like, besides like the stuff about like money and all that stuff, he's like, you want change? Uh, In the exit polls, if people say they voted for science or they're science voters, people will notice really quickly, Hmm. really quickly, because the uh, politicians and their staff and the data analysts, they pay close attention to those exit polls. And so if people show up and say science is one of the reasons they voted, which is I hope the impact of sciencedebate.org. There is some potential for change. So if anyone is voting in any election still in the next month or so, write that on your exit mm-hmm. polls. Science is important. And hopefully we'll see and hear more science from our candidates in 2018. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Awald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, scientific questions you'd like your political candidates to answer, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. And this episode was brought to you by Chef Steps. Great cooking is part art part science. Jules sous vide takes care of the science, cooking meat, fish, and poultry to perfection with precise temperature control. Jewel, perfect food every time. And trust me, I have a Jewel. It's my favorite device in the kitchen. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jewel and use code MINDS to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code MINDS. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.